America's Godly Heritage. Today we're going to be looking at Christopher Columbus. Now Christopher Columbus, as I'm sure that you know, is a controversial figure these days. Some people admire Columbus because of his courageousness, his navigational skills, the fact that he had this vision about sailing west that nobody believed in him and yet he stuck with his dream and saw it to fulfillment and it turned out he was right. He found a whole new world. Yet others revile him because of the horrible things that happened after Columbus found the new world. His opening the door to the European nations, particularly Spain, coming into the New World resulted in terrible, terrible things happening. The pillaging of the natural resources, the killing by the hundreds of thousands of the indigenous peoples who already were living there when the Spanish decided they were going to take over. Columbus is kind of that in-between figure. Some people love him, some people hate him. And let's face it, he had some really admirable traits. He had some terrible character flaws. And yet, every single human being has good character traits and terrible character flaws. Christopher Columbus was simply a flawed human being. He was not evil incarnate. Yet we still today recognize his daring and his ability to go out and, and face his dream and face dangers and the unknown and to find the new world. We celebrate it each year on October 12th, which is the day that he and his crew found land, which was one of the Caribbean islands in what became known as the New World. So let's go back to the beginning here. Columbus wrote a lot of journals as he was sailing, and he wanted the world to know what he was thinking and feeling and what life was like on the ships and what it was like when he was exploring all these new places. So he kept journals. If you read through the journals, you can see that he himself said that he viewed himself as God's instrument to spread the gospel to these not yet known lands. He wrote that his first name, Christopher, means Christ bearer. He believed God had called him to bear or carry the light of Christ into the darkness of these undiscovered lands at that point, they were still undiscovered, and to bring salvation to the inhabitants of those lands. He believed Isaiah 49 verses 1 and 6 had special meaning for his life. It's, listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles and my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. So Columbus claimed that as a verse for his life. You can see here, people on islands, people in distant nations, the Lord called him. He's going to bring a light to the Gentiles and take salvation to the ends of the earth. So Columbus is quite clear he feels God's call on his life in this area. So how did he prepare for all of this? Well, he was born in 1451 into a wool merchant's family in Genoa, Italy. So wait a minute, Christopher Columbus sailed for Spain. How did all of this happen? We'll get to it. He is Italian, but instead of staying with the wool trade, 
he fell in love with the sea and he got a job as a teenager on a merchant ship. And as such, he was able to sail up and down the coast of Europe and down and up the coast of Africa and hone sailing skills. In 1476, pirates attacked the ship he was on and caused it to sink. Columbus was able to grab onto some wood and to float to shore. Well, he happened to land in Portugal. So he went to Lisbon, the capital of Portugal, and there he learned map-making skills. He studied mathematics, cartography, astronomy, navigation, all of those types of things that you would need. As part of his studies, he studied the Greek philosopher, who had been around about 2,000 years earlier, Erasthenes. Erasthenes was so good at his mathematics that he was able to calculate way back then that the earth, yes, was round and that mathematically figured out within 10% accuracy the size of the earth. Also note, people did know the world was round. That whole thing of, oh no, you're going to sail away and fall off the edge of the earth, that's an old wives' tale. They were fearful of some other things, which I'll get to in just a minute. Back to the map making. As part of being a map maker, one of the things map makers would do would be to go and check out other people's maps because they wanted their maps to be as accurate as possible. Marco Polo gave a whole bunch of information about when he went on his overland trip to Asia. He went to India and China and all of that area which was basically unknown at that point in time, and Marco Polo opened it up. Well, a man named Toscanelli made a map based on what Marco Polo wrote. So this map was out there, and Columbus checked it out. And he was able to see that where they figured Japan was was only about 4,700 miles west of Portugal. Of course, we know that's not quite right nowadays, but anyway, it was their best guess at that point in time. Up until the 1400s, most people, when they would sail on a ship, they would hug the land pretty closely. They didn't want to get too far away from land because they didn't have navigational equipment yet to find out where they were if they lost sight of land. Going on their travels up through Europe, into the Mediterranean Sea, down around Africa. Everything had to stay pretty close to land. So the only land that they really knew existed at this point in time was Europe, Africa, and Asia. Around in the mid-1400s, we have the creation of the compass to find out where north is. We have the astrolabe, which helped you figure out where you were based on stars. And we have the quadrant, which is another way of figuring out where you were. These were just getting developed at that point in time, which was enabling people to get a little bit further away from land. But nevertheless, because they didn't know what was out there, they were really scared of just sailing west. It had never been done before. Who knows what monsters might be out there? Who knows what treacherous things could happen to your boat, whirlpools, or shoals or something that would tear your boat apart. They didn't know, and they were really scared. 
So they were still pretty much sticking close to known land at that point in time. But Columbus said, no, we're just going to sail west. We're going to sail out into that great unknown. Now, Columbus was not stupid. He knew that to do what he wanted to do, he was going to need at least three ships. And at that time, the best ships for exploring were called caravels. They were light. They had a shallow draft so you could get in closer to shore. They were harder to tip over. They just were excellent ships for that purpose. And he would need about 90 men to be the sailors on the ships. And then you're going to need about a year's pay for these men, about a year's provisions on the ships. Columbus couldn't afford that. So what's he going to do? He has to go to the royal courts in Europe to try to get one of the kings to sponsor him. So he's in Portugal, so his first trip is to King John II of Portugal. He makes his presentation to King John and his court, and Columbus was told that his idea was preposterous. Okay, so Columbus sent his brother, Bartolomeo, to the court of King Henry VII of England. And King Henry's court told them that their idea was madness. Well, that left Ferdinand and Isabella of Spain. The problem is, Ferdinand and Isabella were in the middle of a holy war, trying to push the Muslim Moors out of southern Spain. So they had other things going on that were more important to them. Nevertheless, they said, okay, you can come and make a presentation to our court, and we'll let you know what we think. So Columbus went and waited four and a half years to hear back from this royal commission, who then concluded that Columbus's plan seemed impossible to any educated person. <laughs> My immediate thought was, if it's impossible to any educated people, and the people on the royal commission were supposed to be educated people, why did it take them four and a half years to figure out that this was an impossible idea? It should have just been preposterous or madness straight away, like in the other places. Columbus is bitterly disappointed because, yet again, he has failed. He has come to the end of what he can do. Everybody seems to be turning their backs on his great idea, and he just can't understand it because he knows something's out there and it's going to be great. So he uh, goes to La Rabida, which was a Franciscan monastery. Back then, if you didn't have a lot of money, you'd go stay at a monastery for the night. You can't afford a hotel, or there aren't any beds available in the hotel. You go and stay at a monastery. Part of the monks' point in society was they would offer hospitality to people. So you could go and stay overnight at the monastery. They'd let you sleep there. They'd give you breakfast in the morning and send you on your way. So Columbus goes, and he's spending the night there. And he happens to start talking to the prior of the monastery. His name is Juan Perez. He also happens to be the queen's confessor. Columbus is telling him, and he later writes about this whole thing I'm about to quote to you in his book that he wrote much later on called the Book of Prophecies. He says, It was the Lord who put into my mind the fact that it would be possible to sail from here to the Indies. All who heard of my project rejected it with laughter, ridiculing me. 
There is no question that the inspiration was from the Holy Spirit because he comforted me with rays of marvelous inspiration from the Holy Scriptures. So they talked some more, and Columbus laid out all his plans to Paris. And the next morning, Paris sent a messenger to the queen, saying he was convinced God's hand was on Christopher Columbus, and she should give him a second chance. So the queen summoned Christopher Columbus back into her presence. Well, at this point in time, they had moved on, and they were at a place called Santa Fe, not the Santa Fe in New Mexico. Santa Fe in Spain, and Columbus could not have arrived at a better time because he arrived right when the Moors were surrendering. The war was over. After this tremendous victory, King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella were wondering how they could show gratitude to God for being able to finally defeat the Moors after all of this time. Columbus just happened to say, I have an idea. We can explore the new world and we can make it into a new crusade where we're bringing the gospel like missionaries to the people of those lands. Ferdinand and Isabella came to agree with Columbus. They gave him what he needed. Quickly put everything together as fast as you could, quick before they changed their minds. And on August 3rd, 1492, Columbus and his crew set sail. I'm sure. Growing up, a lot of you know the whole phrase of, in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Yes, indeed, he did. Thank you for listening to this edition of America's Godly Heritage. I hope you have a great day. Bye! If you would like to help support America's Godly Heritage or to view the resources used to make this podcast, just go to patreon.com or vimeo.com and type America's Godly Heritage in the search box. You can also make financial donations at givesendgo.com. Again, just type America's Godly Heritage in the search box. We really appreciate your support. Thanks again. Bye.